Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. Hello and welcome to another episode of the James Bond Aid Said Podcast, where we have finally reached the letter F, F for Foxtrot. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we dive into the sixth letter of the alphabet is the fun and fancy free Mr. Brendan Duffy. Ah, I wonder ah. what it'd be. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and alongside him is the faithful and fanatical Mr. Tom Wheatley. So you're just doing words now. They're not they're nothing to do with Bond. I forgot what we, I forgot what how I was originally writing these. So this is what I'm stuck on at the moment. But um, I think they had some. They had to have something to do with Bond. It's not just word association. Anymore. Okay. Well, no, no, next... that was the specials. This the, I think you what you're doing is fine. Fine. Thanks. Well, I mean, I'm not fine. Carry on. Regardless, I'm not. Um, I'm not. I'm definitely not tied to either way. Very good. Okay, well, on this episode of uh, the James Bond A to Z, uh, it's a regular episode, so we've got six topics to cover, all under the letter F. And uh, for this one, you get three Bond girls for the price of one. You've got a visual effects artist, supervisor, a writer, and a producer. But first, before we jump into the episode, we had some emails. Have you read these emails? Oh, no. (laughs) Here we go. What have you done now, Brendan? (laughs) What? Well, first, uh, there was a message, uh, an email from uh, my new favourite listener, Jeff Adams from Orlando in Florida, who sent a very lovely long email. He made some brilliant points. One of them was about Brendan. (laughs) He said, you put Never Say Never Again above Thunderball. All through the letters A's and B's, you're my favourite, but now I'm not so sure. Of course, there's a lot of underworld stuff. Is that your only complaint? So, thanks, Jeff. Um, yeah, I'm with Jeff on this one. Yeah, well, it, I mean, you you two never like me throughout A or B, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, he he said thank you for uh, our segment on Carolyn Cossey, the uh, for your eyes only um, actor, and um, he said a heartfelt thanks for your trio for having the moxie not only to highlight Mrs. Cossey but also in a straightforward, mature, apolitical, and respectful way. So very good. That's why the Radio Times called us uh, endearing. So, yeah. but that was that was good, and then. Uh, I feel like we've opened Pandora's box with uh, Dolly's braces. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh oh. We've—I don't think we've had as much engagement on on the email and, and social media since we mentioned Dolly's braces. It's been quite a hot topic. But this email from Tim Way, I thought, was quite enlightening. He said, "I hadn't rewatched Moonraker since I first saw it in 1979 at Bournemouth Cinema until fairly recently, and I saw the braces weren't there." I do find it a little frustrating as I remember the audience reacting with laughter at its first showing in the cinema and then my sister getting offended and complaining via letter as she was wearing braces as well. Being already embarrassed as it wasn't as common as it became in later years. I mentioned it to her recently and she recalls it clearly. So here's a letter from Tim who remembers the braces so well that even his sister remembers writing a complaint letter about them. What's that all about? Well, I don't know what to do with that. 
Aye. Anybody, anybody else that can... Basically, somebody in the world on the internet must have photographic evidence of this. Yeah, someone on Twitter as well said that there there was a, a, a print of the film which had been scratched and looked like she had braces for like three frames, which seems like stretching it a little bit to me. But if you see it at the cinema, that's got to be one big, very detailed scratch. Yeah. Anyway, that's Dolly's braces. I think that's like probably one of the most uh, yeah controversial I'll, things I'll, I've ever talked I about. I mean, I'll level with you. I'm scared to talk about it. <laughs> so... Uh... People following you in the streets. <laughs> yeah, every time you see an email come in with that in the subject line, you, you suddenly your heart skips a beat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, right. So that's enough prattle for now. Um, I guess if people do want to email us though and want to tell us about Dolly's braces, the email address is. Oh, you're doing this at the, the start now. Well, podcast just... at jamesbondatorz.co.uk. Just... I wasn't prepared for that. Sorry, I've just... got my notes out with me, just in case. Notes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then, uh, forward and on with the show. F is for Fearing, Patricia Fearing. So Patricia Fearing is a character in Thunderball, and she is the osteopath at the health clinic, if you remember where um you know where bonds on that thing the stretching machine oh yeah oh yes. yes yeah and it's set to maximum and he's not having a good time on it at all so she comes in just the right time she comes and saves him and uh she worried that she'll get in trouble bond promises to remain silent at a price obviously yeah um, question questionable part this, of the film, this, yeah this is very questionable to be honest and so they go into a steam bath. Then we see him later on and she's enjoying a massage from Bond. And then he suddenly has to leave to investigate a body at the clinic. And that's... Was it a mink, a mink glove or something she's got? It was a mink glove. Well remembered. Mm, good yes. question. That. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's quite problematic, the interaction with them. As, as a lot of, of those early Bond interactions tend to be. Um, so... Molly Peters plays Patricia Fearing visually because it's actually dubbed. Oh, really? Um, yeah, by mm. uh, by an actor called Barbara Jefford. And she has actually provided the voice for Tatiana Romanova in From Russia With Love and also Caroline Monroe in The Spy Love Me. Interesting. Mm. So... Yeah, uh, I'd never noticed that at all. Um, and then I watched the clip of the scene with Patricia Fearing, and yeah, it's like you can tell once you know, you can you can Strange, see. What, what do we know? Why she was dubbed? No, I mean they dubbed the people with foreign accents. No, I couldn't. I couldn't find it. It must must be an accent thing. Mm. So yeah, Molly Peters plays her on screen, and I got a few nice quotes from what she had to say. She she she's has a short acting career, so there's not a lot to say about the rest of her career. But when she, while she was promoting Thunderball in 1965, she said, when I first left my parents' farm to come to London five years ago, I was quite happy working as a shop girl. So she began modelling and that's when she got her career in film. She said, I'd done a cough and a spit, as they say, in the amorous adventures of Mole Flanders. And Terence Young was directing that. So that seems to be her in, you know, she's been directed once by Terence Young then gets a chance. And she says in AJ Chowdhury's book, Some Kind of Hero, 
She says, I was there because I looked good. I remember going down to the studios. I was nervous as anybody could be. I went in with a naivety about the whole thing. I do remember after I completed the scene, there was a spontaneous applause. I don't know if they did that for everybody. I didn't realise the importance of that film and how many people were testing. All I knew that Sean Connery was in it. (laughs) She talks about Terence Young. She said, I felt he was fatherly. I would have given my full trust. I remember he was very patient, very kind. He was an elegant debonair type of man. He had a good sense of humour, very sophisticated, very knowledgeable, a delightful man. I think he was probably more James Bond than anyone else, which backs up what we've spoken about before. Many times, Terence Young, yeah, embodying Bond. And so he actually cleared the set for what was the first nude Bond girl scene. So it was quite a big deal at the time. And so he made sure that it was minimal staff on set for this to happen. And she said, in fact, I was billed as the first nude in a Bond film. I wasn't embarrassed. I remember those days you had to cover your nipples with flesh-coloured plasters. I took them off. I went nude. I thought that was so stupid. But there wasn't much to see. And then she didn't get to travel anywhere, exotic locations. All her scenes were shot at Pinewood. But she does recall... I remember meeting Gregory Peck at the milk machine. I was starstruck. Later, we were driving home and I passed him on the Hammersmith flyover. And I remember he waved to me. So she seemed to enjoy her short little stint in the the world of stardom. But then she gave up shortly after. She had a dispute with her agent and her career just sort of tailed off. And that was it, really. By 1972, she'd, she'd done her last project. She still remained on the Bond circuit. She was doing autographs and signings and stuff. She sadly died in 2017 at the age of 78. Mm. So that's Patricia Fearing, played by Molly Peters. Good character in that film. Very memorable character. Mm. Yeah. It's a funny sequence, that whole bit at... What's it? Shrublands. Shrublands. Same strange sequence, but nice start to the film. F is for Fearstein, Bruce Fearstein. We will have spoken about Fearstein many, many times throughout the podcast because he has quite a large part to play in the later films. He is an American screenwriter who was born in 1956, as well as a humorist, and his place in the Bond story is as a writer for three of the Bond films, and as well as writing for five of the Bond computer games, which I'll explain in a bit. He's also famous for two things. One is uh, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche, which is a book, a sort of humorous book about male well, masculinity in the 80s. Um, and then he also wrote a book called Nice Guys Sleep Alone, which is also a humorous book about men in the 80s, uh, which I think is also a film as well. Uh, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche was on the New York Times bestseller list for 53 weeks. It was a big deal at the time. And 1.6 million copies were sold. It's also the reason that Roger Moore makes quiche in A View to a Kill, which is a reference to to that book at the time. His first job, or one of his first jobs, was changing light bulbs at the runways in Newark Airport. Throwing that in because I thought it sounded interesting as a starting job. (laughs) He has quite an illustrious career as a writer of various 
different skill sets. He was an advertising copywriter in which he won lots of awards in his early days. Um, Then he became a freelance writer for many, many publications, including the New York Times magazine, uh, The New Republic, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, The New Yorker, Playboy. He then became a contributing editor at Spy, which is like a sort of, um, I think it's an American humorous satire magazine, a bit like a private eye thing. And then um, he was contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Uh, he also wrote briefly for Saturday Night Live. And he did. He was a story editor. So you can see his career is changing a bit now from being a sort of paid-for writer on magazines and stuff to getting a bit more involved in TV. Um, so he's a story editor on Fox series called Mr. President, which didn't run for very long. Uh, but had George C. Scott in it, and it was produced by Johnny Carson. He's been in loads of documentaries about um, films and James Bond and Piers Brosnan, which will has become very obvious why in a bit. And he's also been an on-air political commentator for CNBC and Fox News. So he's done an awful lot in the world of journalism and writing. He apparently, um, there's not much evidence of the the information of this because apparently it's uncredited, but he's worked on screenplays for lots of different people. So it's it said um, in uh, an article I read, Will Smith, Bruce Willis, John Travolta, Julia Roberts, um, along with directors John Woo and John Chiernan. So that was uncredited, so I don't know what he did on those. And uh, he also, in 2007, he started producing movies in China, so which apparently are very successful over there. But the reason why we're talking about him is because of James Bond. And in 1995, he became involved in the James Bond story because he was one of the writers on the screenplay for Goldeneye. So he was working with Jeffrey Kane, who started on the original script, and Michael France, who was working on the story for that uh, film as well. And he then followed that by working on Tomorrow Never Dies and The World Is Not Enough with Purvis and Wade. As well as that, he did five computer games, which is quite impressive that they brought it in to do all of those commute games. He did Everything or Nothing, which he's spoken about in the previous episode in quite a lot of depth. He also did From Russia with Love, which he, in which he had adapted the Fleming book and the original film to um, utilise the voice and likeness of Sean Connery in, in the film, in the game. Uh, he did uh, Bloodstone and Goldeneye 007, but the interesting thing about those is that he had to create original stories for both of those and set them in sort of modern styling. So Goldeneye 007, it basically rewrote the Goldeneye game, but with Daniel Craig character, because the premise of that is that Bond changes throughout time. And if you write a story about Bond when there's a new Bond, you use that Bond to talk about Bond. You don't use the old Bond to talk about it. Although that's not the case with... So yeah, they've got. He doesn't. He, he does quite a lot of interviews about making films, the industry. Um, it's, it's quite a lot of nice ones, really, where he's sort of given advice to young, aspiring filmmakers and writers about the industry. And he talks a lot about how it's all very much happenstance. Like things just happen, and it you, you can't really plan for them. He said, I think the main thing I've learned is that you never know where life is going to take you. Advertising led me to write my first screenplay. A line of dialogue that got cut from a script as unfunny became the book Real Men. A romantic comedy that didn't get made led Barbara Broccoli to hire me to fix the dialogue on a Bond film and learning that I could write action movies. So he's basically saying that he never planned for all of this sort of working on the Bond scripts and everything. It just happened prior just a series of of different occurrences. And obviously it turned out for for the better for him because he worked on so many Bond things. And 
he's also credited by a lot of people by being a man that sort of reinvented Bond. Jeff Kleeman, who's a writer, he was a writer, he's also a production executive at Paramount Pictures, talks about him quite a lot. He says, yeah, he talks a bit about why they brought him in. Obviously, Barbara Broccoli read a bit of his work, his work and brought him on to do the film. And he talks about how he was an accidental discovery and they're already deep in making GoldenEye. But one of the things that they just thought that wasn't working was it wasn't witty enough. There wasn't sort of enough comedy in it. Uh, so Barbara brought him along to work on the script and he, Clemens uh, mentions that he, he thought that Barbara knew him from social circles. Um, so she already understood what, how he could write. He says, uh, we paid him very little money with the idea of, Hey, come on in and just punch it up. And we figured if we got a couple of great jokes or lines, terrific. And if we didn't, no harm, no foul. And Bruce came in and he changed the course of Bond, which is nice really, because um, he talks a bit about uh, how he came in and just like spruced up the script and he made the character uh, Brosnan's, Brosnan's Bond just be a li- little bit wittier and a bit more self-aware. And there's a lot of bits that I've read where Bruce Fierstein and Martin Campbell worked very closely. And obviously Martin Campbell, he had almost a fresh start with GoldenEye in that he pulled together a new Bond. There was a big gap between the the last film and this one and him and Bruce Fierstein really worked quite closely together to develop this character in such a way that it was fresh but it it still had all of the hallmarks of Bond but it was for a new age and apparently uh, Cleman talks about Bruce uh, Fierstein and Martin Campbell and he says uh, Martin actually had a list of mannerisms that he'd seen Piers perfect during Remington Steel and in some of his feature work that he decided that he was going to make sure he eliminated them and essentially give Pierce a new version of those things so that you knew you were watching Pierce Brosnan, obviously, but you never felt that you were watching Remington Steele's version of Pierce Brosnan. So, yeah, so it, it looked like they worked very closely on that creation of, of Brosnan and, and his character. And um, Fierstein talked a little bit about, about it as well. And he says at the time... Um, I think the formula needed updating. For me, the scene where the movies left the ranch was in Roger Moore's film Moonraker. Roger Moore is in a gondola and it comes out of the water and he goes through the plaza. And then he says, he's a spy, exclamation mark. Um, so Goldeneye talks a bit about how it was an opportunity to really sort, sort of fix those things. And the same thing really with what they did with Casino Royale, but in a very different way where they he came in and they just had to really look at the character and, and define him and, and imagine that's probably where John Cork's work came in as well, all around that same that same process. But yeah, so Bruce Fierstein, really um a lot to thank him for in the creation of especially um Brendan uh, in the creation of the, the Brosnan films. Don't know why I didn't stay on for Die Another Day, but maybe that film would have been a bit better if Fierstein was involved in that. Mm. Um so yeah, Bruce Fierstein. What a legend. F is for Feldman, Charles K. Feldman. He was born in April 26, 1905, died May 25th, 1968. He was a Hollywood attorney, film producer and talent agent who founded the famous artist talent agency. And in the context of the James Bond Aid said podcast, he was the producer of 1967's Casino Royale. So a lot of this we covered back on that episode. So if you want to know more about Casino Royale and the 1967 version of that film, revisit that episode um, back in the catalogue. But just a little bit about Charles Feldman. He was born Charles Kenneth Gould and he was born to a Jewish family in New York City. His father was a diamond merchant who emigrated to New Jersey. 
Uh, but both of his parents unfortunately died of cancer and he was orphaned by the age of six. So mm. he was orphaned and he was then adopted by Samuel and Bertha Feldman, age seven. And he was one of six children, um, I think, or one of one of quite a few children. And the way that Samuel and Bertha Feldman chose which child to adopt is they made him and his brother have a foot race. And so Charles won the <laughs> foot race. And so they decided to adopt him and not his brother. So... <laughs> Amazing. A bit of a crazy story there. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, well, when you go back to that podcast we did before, there's a lot of crazy stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the Feldmans then brought him up first in New Jersey and then later they moved to California and he went to University of Michigan and the University of California and the University of Southern California and eventually came out with a law degree. He first uh, sort of became involved with the film industry, working as a cameraman during his holidays to pay through college. But then he later began his professional life as a in the working in the law as an attorney and represented people within the in the movies. He then later moved out of law, practicing law, and moved into uh, being an agent, a film like an agent for actors and, and creatives and so on. Uh, and he started the um, Charles K. Feldman Corporation uh, in 1932. By all accounts, quite a gregarious character. Um, one of those sort of, they don't make, make him like this type of people. Like we, we discussed before, he is famous uh, in Hollywood for pioneering the package deal, which would marry up a story with an actor, with a director, and then he would sell that package onto a studio rather than the idea of that sort of long-term studio contract. So that was what he was really famous for um, in sort of old Hollywood. So he had production companies as well, and he also uh, had a production company with Howard Hawks. And during World War II, they worked together to create films with Howard Hawks as the producer-director under the organisation HF Productions. In 1945, they joined forces to create Monterey Productions and Feldman received the title of executive producer and they produced a bunch of films, including one called Red River, but that, that ended in 1947. So after that, he continued onwards with a bunch of different companies, the Charles K. Feldman Packages, Famous Artist Productions, Famous Artist Agency. And it's a famous artist agency where Cubby Broccoli worked under Feldman and became he became sort of a mentor to, to Cubby and influenced Cubby's uh, pr- uh, career from there onwards, you know, like becoming the, the film producer rather than um, running around for other people. So in a, in, a, in a write-up talking about Feldman and that era of Hollywood, uh, a journalist called Tom Kemper wrote in Cine Action, Feldman constructed his own distinguished persona, persona within the industry, gentlemanly, charming and learned. Friends called him Gable for his rakish resemblance to the star. In all his endeavours, Charles played the courtly diplomat, even at his most aggressive, a stance he did not shy from. Feldman took a dialectical approach to negotiations, hearing out the opposing side while developing persuasive compromises or pinpointing holes in their positions that worked to the advantage of his clients. So he was always working for on behalf of his, his clients to get the best deals for him. Talking about Feldman in a uh, Vanity Fair piece, they wrote, he was a prodigious womanizer and he was romantically involved with Greta Garbo, Rita Hayworth, Hedy Lamarr, Joan Fontaine, Olivia de Havilland, Ava Gardner and many others. 
Women loved him, said his widow, the former Clotilde Barrow. He was very kind, made women feel terrific. He liked actresses and models and his taste in girls was very good. He was a big, big charmer, but you wanted to protect him. Yeah, so mm-hmm. basically he was one of the last of the sort of playboy producers in Hollywood. He was friends with Jack Kennedy and Samuel Goldwyn, the legendary uh, film mogul, said he could charm you off your feet. When you left Charlie, you're lucky if you still have your pants left. That was quite a funny, funny quote. So then he went into producing films and, you know, uh, we talked about this before, but he produced Autumn Wells and Macbeth, Streetcar Does at Name Desire, Seven Year Itch and What's New Pussycat. And it was in 1960 that while he's producing films that Feldman obtained the rights to Casino Royale. But just a few months later, he was then beaten to the punch by Cubby and Harry, who bought up the rest of Fleming's work in the deal that we've discussed many, many times. So he set about trying to adapt it, and it took him many years. Again, see the episodes we did about Casino Royale before. Basically, after Ben Hecht finished his script, which was a very sort of um, Hitchcocky espionage thriller version of Casino Royale, Charles Feldman decided to take the project in a radical new direction, probably due to the success of What's New Pussycat and also the success of the Bond films at the time. And so then he ended up hiring in loads of different writers to work on the Casino Royale script. And it obviously became this very bizarre film that we got in the end. He was very paranoid at this time. He would not let the writers take the script away and work on it in, on their own for fear of them giving their ideas away. And he was also worried that he would lose any ideas that they came up with to the actual Bond films because the Bond films were heavily influenced by what had happened in the Casino Royale book but had never been adapted. And they actually raised the idea of suing Eon at the time. So yeah. So when they went on to film Casino Royale, Feldman met with Cubbly Broccoli and Harry Saltzman to talk about going into partnership on the film, but they couldn't agree on the terms. Eon were going to offer him half a million dollars and 25% of the profits, but Feldman demanded more. He wanted 75% of the profits, which was just too much for Harry and Cubby, having already gone into partnership with Kevin McClory. Feldman approached Connery to play Bond in Casino Royale, as we've discussed before, but he refused to pay him $1 million to take on the role of playing Bond again. So yeah, that's that's about it. Um, a lot more to add on Charles Feldman, but we covered it in, in Casino Royale, the 67 episode. So um, yeah, it's just to say that uh, he married twice, first to an actor called Gene Howard in 1934, and they divorced in 1948. And then uh, to Clotilde Bardot, just before he died, in fact, in 1968. And he d- died of cancer in Beverly Hills in May 25th, 1968. And Wolf Mankiewicz, the famous screenwriter, said, Casino Royale, 1967, without a doubt, it killed Feldman. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's one of the many James Bond producers that we've covered, but one of the more colourful, I think. F is for Fields. Agent Fields. Do either of you know Agent Fields' first name? Strawberry. No idea. Strawberry. Yeah. Even though it's not, oh, said, yeah. in the, it's not said in the film. Is it not? Mm. Nope. She, she just says Agent Fields. She never says her first name. So, yeah, appears in Quantum of Solace and she works for the British consulate in Bolivia and she meets Bond at the airport uh, in order to send him directly back to London and that if, basically, if he tries to escape, she'll chain him up and put him on the plane and escort him there. She takes him to a hotel, a low-key sort of hotel to try and, so they can stay undercover, but 
he refuses to stay there and decides to go to a fancy, lavish hotel. She is then won over by Bond's charm and charisma, so she sleeps with him. They attend Dominic Green's fundraiser. She gets into an altercation with some of the henchmen and they send them hurtling downstairs. And then the next evening, Bond discovers Fields is dead and her body is pretty much identical. It's like visually identical to Jill Masterson in Goldfinger, but instead of covered in gold, she's covered in oil, thick black oil. So yeah, it's a relatively small part in the, in the but it's a short film isn't it so um, yeah yeah i watched i watched the scene and it's reminiscent of it, it could be in a 60s or 70s bond film it doesn't feel very modern it's very old school so she Gemma arterton plays agent fields and she had to film that death scene first so she was covered completely in non, non-toxic black paint and was then naked on the bed for the day. And she found the experience unpleasant, but she saw it as an iconic part of the film, so she was happy to, to be part of it. So the character's name, Strawberry Fields, a reference to? The Beatles song. The Beatles song, yes. And like I said, it's never uttered on screen, so... Yeah, but, uh, not sure why. How did sure it come why. out that it, that was her name? It's in, it's in the credits of Strawberry Fields. Oh, okay. It's just she doesn't say it out loud. How very strange. What a pointless thing. Yeah, I thought that. You could just call her Agent Fields, couldn't they? Like, the, the reason that you give them these names is so that you get that sort of punchline in when they say it. But yeah, weird. but the strawberry is a reference to her hair, isn't it? She's got red hair. So, yeah, she... This is what Gemma Artson said about playing the role. This is more recently that she said this. At the beginning of my career, I was as poor as a church mouse and I was happy just to be able to work and earn a living. I still get criticism for accepting Quantum of Solace, but I was 21, I had a student loan, and you know what? It was a Bond film. But as I got older, I realised there was so much wrong with Bond women. Strawberry should have said no and worn flat shoes. So... She's retrospectively also written a short story. So she said, I've written this short story, which I could get into a lot of trouble for. It's called Woke Bond Woman. And it's about what my Bond girl should have done. So it's part of an anthology book by Scarlett Curtis called Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies. And so Gemma Arterton's short story is written as a diary entry for Strawberry Fields. And so she's sort of rewriting that history. And it it sees Strawberry Fields uh, ignores... James Bond's invitation to join her in his hotel room. And so she, you know, doesn't die, basically. And so this is a few quotes from the story. I'm not interested in flirting with you. I'm here to work. And so that's what she tells him in this fictional version of events. And then she's invited up to the room. She says, no, thank you. And writes, maybe he is attractive, but he's at least 20 years older than me. We've only just met. He's a colleague. Plus, this man has a reputation. Don't women who go up to his hotel room and sleep with him usually die in some horrific yet iconic way? No, no, not me. Yeah, you can see what she's trying to do there. thought that was quite interesting that she went back and decided to write that. And like she said, she could have got into a lot of trouble for using a character as part that's part of the Bond franchise. Gemma Arterton was born 2nd of February 1986 in Gravesend, England. 
the resting place of Ian Fleming. Nope, Pocahontas. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh well, surprised I didn't get that one. Well, I thought you're a big, big Disney fan. Um, no, I don't think they mention that in a <laughs> Disney film. No, they don't. Um, so she made her film debut in St. Trinian's in 2007. That's not a film that I remember seeing, but it was popular. I have it? seen that film. Yeah, and it's not very good. Okay. Well, she played head girl Kelly. So um, yeah, and then I've just taken a few few of the films that she's been in: Disappearance of Alice Creed. That's very good. Um, Clash of the Titans. Bad. New, not very good. <laughs> Prince of Persia, Sands of Time. Bad. New, not very good. Han- <laughs> Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters. Bad. No, not even going to even bother looking at what that is. <laughs> the next one's good. Made in Dagenham. I enjoyed That's that. That's very good. That's a good film. Yeah. Is Rosamund Pike? Um, is Rosamund Pike in that as well? I'm sure she is, yeah. Ah. And she also starred in the stage play of it as well, mm. for which she was nominated for an Olivier. So it's... Um, wow. Yeah. She also acted and produced a film called The Escape in 2017, and she received a Woman of the Year Award from Harper's Bazaar for that. And then next... Coming up next, she's going to be a part of the Kingsman series, the Matthew Vaughan Kingsman series in The King's Man, uh, which is out in December, I believe, December 21. Yeah. And uh, she's playing a character called Polly. So little little nugget of information about her. She was born with an extra finger on each hand. No. And she says, it's my little oddity that I'm really proud of. People are really interested, but repulsed at the same time. So it's, Excited, it's, eh? it's, it's known as polydactyly. That's the... the what it's known as, and it affects one child in a thousand. So she was born with a small soft digit that doesn't contain a bone with a little nail in it next to her small her little finger. Mm. And I also was. So there's the, the big reveal. Wow. Oh. <laughs> what, on both yeah. hands? No, on um, on my left hand and my right foot. So, um, wow. There you go. Something I've got in common with Gemma Arterton. She, in 2016, she started her own production company called Rebel Park Productions, and their focus is creating female-led content in front of and behind the camera. She's been an integral part in persuading actors to wear black at the 2018 BAFTAs to support Time's Up, and she's been heavily involved with ERA 5050, which is an equal pay campaign in the UK. Uh, since it started so and and that short story that she wrote trying to sort of rewrite the um rewrite that story was part of the me too movement so she yeah she's um very proud campaigner of those causes so yeah that's that's uh Gemma Arterton who played strawberry Poor Fields. old Gemma Arterton I think anybody any bond woman who was going to come in after Vesper Lynn was always going to get a tough ride but in that film as well mm. it's 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 a it's a tough tough role to pick up yeah, it's quite yeah. an old-fashioned type of character, isn't it? I think in the terms of the way the Bond girls yeah. have developed over the years. Um, Absolutely, yeah, and and she does stand out like a sore thumb if you if you compare it to you know in the next the three films that followed that. I think there was a was there a perfume? Did she play a perfume commercial as well in character? I could be wrong. Um, uh, that does ring a bell. A 007 yeah. perfume, yeah, yeah. But another thing, just to mention, she's fantastic in this film called The Girl with All the Gifts, which is like a zombie apocalypse type movie. It's a very low-key apocalypse movie, but very good. Very, very good. Okay, noted. Noted. F is for Finlayson, Nick Finlayson. 
Is that how you pronounce it? it doesn't sound right. Fin- Finlayson. Finlayson. Is it Finlayson? Uh, oh, I don't know. There wasn't, there wasn't a phonetic explanation <laughs> of it. Uh, so Finlayson, I'll call him Nick. Um, he was he, he's a special effects specialist who was affectionately known as the real Q because of his amazing feats of creating brilliant special effects with lots of technological advances and all these clever things. Um, sadly, he passed away in 2019 at the age of 63, but he leaves behind a f- pretty damn impressive legacy of films, not just Bond. He is, he started his career in, I don't know if either of you know this, the, the show Terrorhawks, Joey Anderson show. Yes. Fantastic, scary show. My, my parents often bring it up. It's one of those shows that I think it scared me so much as a kid because I think all the Terrorhawks have got like faces of birds. Yeah. All the baddies have. It's a bit um, like uh, Dark Crystal, it, isn't it? It's a bit like Dark Crystal. It's, I mean, it's essentially, um, I mean, my parents always remind me of it because I think I used to like hide from it because they were so weird, but I was also obsessed with the series because it was so memorable. But that was the first thing he worked on. He worked on quite a lot of episodes of that as just a, a like a model workshop guy. So not not a, a big role in it, but he was he was he was working on all of those episodes. Uh, another thing he worked on, which I found out, which you can't really nobody really mentions it, but he worked on uh, Memphis Bell as a modeler and a technician. Remember that film? I loved that film when I was yeah. massive in the time, wasn't it? Memphis Bell. Well, they were both but- hasn't really stood the test of time. Was, did they film it in Lincolnshire? Um and that's why well, that might be why we why know we about it. so popular at the time. I'm sure they did. Nobody else has a clue about yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> Harry Connick Jr. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, back when Harry Connick Jr. was cool. So yeah, as, uh, th- that's how we started. But his career in film is ridiculous. I won't start talking about the Bond ones yet. I'll just throw in some of the the things he's worked on, and this varies. So he. From the start of his career, he worked on Aliens. So he was like a special effects technician on Aliens. Uh, he worked on Willow. And as time goes on, he starts getting more senior and senior roles on these on these films. Uh, Highlander 2, uh, Far and Away, Cliffhanger, Fifth Element, The Mummy, 102 Dalmatians, Lara Croft Tomb Raider. It just goes on. He's been working solidly until Spider-Man Far From Home, Pokemon, Pic- uh, Detective Pikachu, the Kid Who Would Be King, which is pretty cool. Mary Poppins Returns, Assassin's Creed. I mean, this list is enormous, the amount of films that he's worked on doing the special effects. So he's clearly knew his onions when it came to special effects. Uh, but we're talking about him t- today because of his uh, association with Bond. And he worked on quite a few Bond films. So I think I think it was 10? Yeah, 10 Bond films he's worked on in the special effects department. His first Bond film that he became involved with was A View to a Kill. He wasn't in charge of it then. He was a special effects technician. And then he worked on all of them up until Skyfall. So GoldenEye was where he really got his teeth into it. So those those films, the Dalton films and um, View to a Kill, he was involved. But it wasn't. And his name really started getting thrown around with Bond when it got to GoldenEye because he was so pivotal in building the sort of effects behind this character and creating this whole amazing way that that film looks. Uh, and one of the things he is most famous for is the Piton gun used in the pre-title sequence in Goldeneye, which, as we've discussed, I think, before in one of the episodes, is he actually created guns that did... You could actually shoot stuff out of it that did this. So he uh, customised a Ranger paintball gun as the weapon, but he also crafted two practical versions of the weapon that actually did stuff. So they shot they shot something out that looked like it was a, shooting a rope out. 
and then a rubber resin solid stunt version to be used as well so for like close-ups and things like that and that was for way michaels who was who was the stunt double who was doing that that stunt for piers brosnan uh in tomorrow never dies and well done enough and die another day he did loads of different pieces for those so uh, the omega seamaster had loads of gadgets in it Wayland's practical viper piton bracelet uh, he also worked on loads of the cars as well. So um, he worked with Andy Smith's uh, special vehicles team who worked on a lot of the vehicles, including the BMW 750IL, uh, the Z8, and uh, the Aston Martin Vanquish. And this is an interesting fact. The special effects machine guns that were created for the Vanquish were used again by in Christian Bale's Batcar, the Tumblr in Batman Begins. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. Um, so he must have done a good job on that. Uh, and then I, I read that in an article that the most memorable thing he did, which is I think is probably pretty accurate, I don't think it's the best that he did, but it's probably the most memorable, is the Ericsson JB988 mobile phone, which is in Tomorrow Never Dies, the remote control one that he created. But it does other stuff as well. It's got the fingerprint scanner on it, uh, electric shock stun thing. So yeah, quite a clever bit of kit that he created there that He actually built it so it looked like it did all those things. He also worked, he was senior effects technician and he worked very closely with Chris Corbold on Casino Royale. So he did a lot of the gadgets and stuff in that, which I think is a, there's some pretty cool stuff in that one. It's quite subtle, but it's, it's quite nice nonetheless. So yeah, so that's, so his his career led him all the way up to um, Spider-Man Far From Home in 2019. Amazing, man you know, ridiculous amount. If he's doing all of the, the gadgets, some phenomenal gadgets in those films, and he basically took the whole of the the um, Bond tenure from Brosnan all the way up to almost the end of the um, Daniel Craig days. So pretty big deal. So good work. <laughs> good work, Nick. F is for Flex. Jenny Flex. You guys remember Jenny Flex? How can I forget? (laughs) (laughs) She's a hench person slash equestrian in 1985's A View to a Kill. She was played... (laughs) Slash equestrian? (laughs) Is that what she's down on the credit says? She was played by Irish actor Alison Doody. Yeah, so she's an equestrian slash enforcer. Well, you remember when she's introduced in the film... She comes down the stairs at Chateau de Chantilly and she's got the riding outfit on, hasn't she? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she's definitely, yeah, she definitely works with the horses, let's put it that way. And she's p- paired in the film with another a hench person, Pan Ho, who's played by an actor called Papillon, Papillon Susu. Anyway, yeah, she's introduced in the film when Bond, Roger Moore's James Bond, gets to Chateau de Chantilly, which is Zorin's French chateau. And she says, welcome, I'm Jenny Flex. To which Bond replies... Of course you are, which of course, <laughs> utter rubbish. Which of course <laughs> is a reference to diamonds are forever, or is it just a, a lazy line? Who knows? <laughs> I think it's just lazy. Oh, it's line. lazy. I've always just seen it as a lazy line. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, welcome. I'm Jenny Flex. It's just such a bizarre introduction. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously, then she shows Bond and Tibbet to their room, shows them around. She. Len later appears at the reception party. Uh, she's then dressed in a, in a cocktail dress and she's enjoying herself at the reception. And then later on, uh, she plays an instrumental part in the murder of Patrick McNeese Tibbet, which, uh, you know, earns a big boo from me because he's one of the best things in that film. Her and, and Pan Ho, they pretend to have engine trouble and, and Tibbet pulls over to help them. And then that's when Mayday slips into the car and kills him. 
and Jenny Flex is there when when the rolls is pushed into the lake with Tibbet's body and 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 Bond in the back. She's in the film then a few more times. She has a confrontation with Gogol and then there is a, the fire at City Hall, which she's helping to set fire to things in City Hall. And then later on, she's in the main strike mine at the end of the film. And she is eventually betrayed by Max Zorin because he floods the mine with her and Pan Ho in it. And it's seeing Jenny Flex's body float past that causes Mayday to defect and side with Bond at the end of the film. So it's sort of suggested that maybe Mayday and Jenny Flex had a deeper relationship beyond just being colleagues. But that's that's maybe just reading a bit too much into it. I think maybe she just saw that Zorin had turned against his own people and so therefore... You do realise this is a view to a kill. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't start thinking that there's some complex narrative behind this. Um, but yeah, so she's... Jenny Fleck, she's like quite a relatively minor hench person role, but quite an important one for that final, final reason. But um, I don't know. She's a bit of an underwritten character who is more name than character really i'm i'm always jenny flex always confuses me because she appears in like so many references in articles and books and things and she she almost gets listed as one of the of the bond like like the bond women well i don't understand why there's people in all the other films that have bigger parts than her that you don't even people don't even mention. I think it's just the name. I think the name just makes people add added to stuff. Yeah, she's memorable for the name, but also this is a fun fact for you. She's actually the youngest Bond girl ever. I did know that she was yeah. eighteen at the time when she made the film. Um, yeah. Which then, obviously, with Strawberry Fields at twenty-one, it kind of puts it into a bit of perspective there, doesn't it? Yeah, maybe that it's for that reason that she's she's remembered more fondly um, than she is. Mm. I, I read a thing. I don't know how sure how accurate this is, but a bodybuilder called Anita Gandol was considered for the role of Jenny Flex, and this was at a point when the character was intended to be someone bigger and stronger than Mayday herself. Why would you do that? <laughs> why would you? Why would you add in somebody bigger and stronger than Mayday? Well, that's probably why they changed it. But obviously the name Jenny Flex makes more sense if it was a hench muscle bound yes. bodybuilder, yeah. right? So then the name makes yeah. more sense. So you can kind of see that. But this bodybuilder, I'd never heard of her before, but she was quite famous in the 1980s. So yeah, Alison Doody, uh, she is an Irish actor. She was born in Dublin, Ireland, and she was the youngest of three children. As a, as a teenager, she was approached by a photographer to become a model, um, and then she turned that into a commercial modelling career. She avoided, possibly due to her Catholic upbringing, but she avoided doing glamour and any nude work, and that's something she's always sort of extended to her acting work as well. Um, and while as a model, this is when she caught the attention of the casting director on A View to a Kill. After appearing in that, she was listed as one of the 12 promising new actors of 1986, uh, in John Willis's Screen World. And after that, she went on to appear in a number of films and TV shows, including A Prayer for the Dying, which is an Irish film with Mickey Rourke in it, a TV movie called Harry's Kingdom, a TV adaptation of Secret Garden, uh, which had Colin Firth in it, and also Taffin with Piers Brosnan. Now we're talking. Yes. <laughs> now we're talking. Now now I can see, see why she gets so much attention. <laughs> But obviously her most famous film role came in 1989 when she played Elsa Schneider in Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, mm. which every time I talk about, I think it's, it's, it's probably one of my favourite films of all time, I think. 
the more I think about it. But yes, yeah, so this is her talking about, she hasn't really given many interviews talking about uh, Jenny Flex. But this is what she said about playing Elsa Schneider in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which, let's not forget, was only four years later. So she's still only 22 when she's playing opposite Harrison Ford, Sean Connery in a Steven Spielberg film. She said, I was really learning the business at the time because I had no real experience. I had done some work, but I'd never studied acting. So it was very new to me. Acting for me was was hard. I wanted my character to be attractive and sexy, but I found the accent very cold. So it was very hard to me to, for me to do that. So after that, she starred with Jonathan Price, Bond alumni, uh, in the series Selling Hitler. She then moved to Hollywood. She became a spokes, uh, like a face for L'Oreal um, hair products. And she appeared opposite Charlie Sheen in 1994's Major League Two, um, which I assume is a baseball film. What? That sounds fantastic. I've not seen it. <laughs> But then in 1994, she left the limelight. She gave up being an actor. She married a millionaire called Gavin O'Reilly, who I believe is a media mogul in Ireland. I think he was the CEO of the independent news and media company. But yeah, she left acting and raised a family. They had two daughters together, Alana and Lauren. And she basically just quit acting, full stop. She did return to acting in the early noughties. She's never really reached the same sort of levels as she did do in the early 80s and, and uh, throughout the 80s but um, she's been in a few films one in 2010 was a film called The Rapture which also starred Danny Dyer and her next film that she will be in which is due out next year in 2022 is called RRR and it's an Indian film so yeah so she separated from Gavin O'Reilly in 2004 and they, they divorced uh, in 2006 she met someone else called Douglas De Jager, and they had a sort of low-key relationship before he died in 2012. And then she was engaged to someone called Tad Geary, but broke up. But they broke up in 2015. Tad Geary, according to this online article um, that I read, is a beef baron. Which <laughs> is it? Is it what a beef baron? Beef baron, mate. What's a beef baron? I don't know. Just, just very powerful in the world of beef. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's uh, be a fantastic Bond villain, the Big Baron. Tad Geary, <laughs> Beef Baron. So, yeah, apologies, Jenny, if you're listening. Uh, I mean, Alison. Um, <laughs> Even more apologies. Yeah. Um, but that's it, really. There's not a huge amount of information about Alison Doody. I think because she gave up acting for so long, she's sort of not really like very active in the promotional world. So um, she mm. does very few interviews. She has got an Instagram page, though. You can check that out. And she's just launched her own range of memorabilia um, and you can get signed photos and dedicated videos mm. and stuff like that. If you wanted a signed picture of Jenny Flex, you can get one. I tell you what, I don't want Jenny Flex, but I tell you, her um, role in Last Crusade is very good. She's um, the one of the best scenes in that film is where they, uh, him and um, John Connery have that sort of joke that they've both pulled her. Yes, it's when they're tied to the chair, isn't it? And uh, yeah, one of the finest scenes where they where he does it like raises his eyebrow. Yeah, and, how did uh, you find that yeah. out? Oh, she but, talks in her sleep. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. But she's a good character in that. She she does play a, a very. Um, I always forget that she that she did that on Jenny Flex, but yeah, she's um, she plays a good double agent in that. It's quite a, it's good acting for somebody who's not very confident yeah who says that they're not uh not a real actor yeah i mean it's is uh, it is pretty good the thing i find funny about this and just ch- checking her age now she's still not as old as roger moore was when he did a view to a kill 
which just blows my mind. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, amazing. <sighs> yeah, thank goodness he, he didn't pull it, did he? And, um, no. No, he didn't. No. You took kill. That would have been <laughs> Yeah. I bet it, I bet it cropped up in the conversation. They went no too far. Too far. <laughs> right, well that wraps up this episode. Um, something I've noticed recently uh, is that our most popular episodes are the specials. So if you are listening to this, then you are one of the hardcore faithful. So uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, we love recording all of our episodes, um, and these ones are just as much fun as the ep- uh, the specials. So uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Anything else to say? Sorry, there's no uh, tax. We didn't cover any tax this week. No but, tax. Hopefully. Ah, the tax. Yeah, we yeah. really really need to up our game with the tax. Yeah. Do you two want to promote the other podcast that you're appearing on? Yes, we uh, we will be appearing. I don't know when it's going to... Well, it would have been out by now, actually, based on when we're recording this. We're on the Fundamentals podcast talking about basically everything to do with Bond. So it's a bit different in this podcast. We're actually just talking generally in terms of Bond. So that's that's me and Brendan. Um, so check that out. Any tax relief chat in there? Largely tax relief. There's a, there's, it's, yeah, Brendan talks quite a bit about corporation tax. Um, <laughs> yeah. You, you, you do some of your tax returns, don't you? Live. Yeah, I do them live. Yeah. I do them live on the podcast <laughs> yeah. and um, it, it goes down really well. But yeah, thanks to Harley for inviting us onto that. That's, um, yeah, I guess that's enough prattling for now. So if people want to email us again, what's the email? Don't email us again. Uh, <laughs> podcast at jamesmontazz.co.uk. And the socials? At James Bond A to Z on Twitter, Instagram, and Meta. I mean, Facebook. <laughs> yeah, come and tell us about Dolly's braces. Uh, we really appreciate no. <laughs> all your messages. <laughs> we'll do a separate podcast for that. Brendan can just answer <laughs> Dolly's queries. Our next episode will be about the man himself, Mr. Ian Fleming. It's a it's a Fleming special. Join us for that. It's going to be a really interesting episode. And thank you again for listening. James Bond will return next week in the James Bond A to Z. Thank you. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley. With music by Tom Ingemels. And artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. <laughs> <laughs>